how's the painting coming along, Scott? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm glad I told you about that. I, I wasn't sure. You hadn't asked me a lot of questions about it, honestly. I was kind of feeling some type of way about it. But now you're asking me, so I guess it's water under the bridge, man. It's all good. But it's going well, bro. Yeah, you know, I got a little texture going on, and it's kind of hopping off the canvas, so to speak. I feel like I'm getting in touch with my inner Picasso, my inner Monet. You know what I mean? You, feel, no, you right. feel that? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I feel it, man. You have to send me some pictures when you get done with that first painting, at least. But what about the book you were reading? Um, Graham Hancock, you're reading a book. Oh, him, yeah, right? dude. Fingerprints of the gods and magicians of the gods. Good stuff. Uh, no, I'm still kind of plugging through, you know, like these days I have, I feel like I have very little time to flip pages, yeah. you know what busy, I mean? Busy. But I'm getting closer and my mind, my mind, bro, is just exploded, exploded with knowledge. Good. Fantastic. I love it. That's great. I might have to read it. I am actually thinking about reading the John Lloyd Stevens Incidents of Travel again. It's a fucking tome, but it's well worth a read each and every time. You read you read that, right? Yeah, I just I started off, yeah, definitely kind of started off with it. I felt like it would have been easier to absorb if I had like a bard, like kind of old like medieval sing it to me. You know, like I feel like I might have picked it up a little bit better. It takes a lot of effort to read something like yeah, that. Yeah. It takes a lot of effort to read, bro. Yeah. It's got pros and cons. Hey, hey, you ain't kidding. buddy. Say, speaking of reading, uh, why did the book go to the doctor? Um, He had too many periods. That's I, pretty I don't good. know. Uh, but no, it broke its spine. Clever. Very, very clever. Yeah, like this one, too. Uh, which, which books are the hardest to force yourself to read through? Fiction. Anything fiction, of course. No, 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 no. Friction. <laughs> oh, oh Friction? man, that's, that's good. Get I it? like that. You get it? Yeah. Come on. Yeah, I like it. Come on. That's no, good. It's good. Yeah, it's great, but not as good as this next one here. Why did the librarian get kicked off the plane? Ooh. Uh, being a Karen. Nope. Wrong again, my Damn friend. It. The flight was overbooked. Hey. That was an easy one. Overbooked. Wow. That one went right over my head. <laughs> right over my head. But uh, speaking of getting kicked off of planes, did you see that woman who got kicked off a, a plane recently? Uh, not the alien lady, but the uh, record me, you bum. I'm Instagram famous. Oh, that yeah, lady? yeah. Did you see that? Yeah, she was all up and making a fuss, definitely. Yeah, she's like, no, I didn't get kicked off the plane. I... I left like okay. Yeah, I those, chose to leave. Those three people pushing you off the plane. Definitely, <laughs> you were leaving by choice for sure. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't heard, the Instagram famous lady was filmed getting booted off this plane recently, and she was mouthing off to everyone recording her. Which, yeah, I mean, it would be pretty annoying, you know, to have a plane full of people filming you as you're getting kicked off. But just don't do shit that gets kicked off a plane. Oh yeah, I mean, it's pretty simple. You get on the plane, you sit in your seat, you enjoy the flight, and then you get off. Like it's for boom. Four or five things. Bing, bang, boom. And exactly. you don't get kicked off. No. Just behave. Anyway, this lady was recently offered a porn deal, if you can believe that, in the year 2023. <laughs> Isn't that always how it goes? Like, some chick gets famous, and somebody in the back behind the stage, you know, waiting in the wings is like, hey, want to take your clothes off now? We'll, we'll give you some money. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, always. Every woman that's famous, yeah, so many porn people are like, hmm. Let's hmm. pitch something at her. Let's pitch, I don't know. Yeah, maybe $25,000. Yeah, maybe she takes the clothes off. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, so she was offered like $25,000 to do some solo webcam shit or some wow. shit. Wow, 25 like that. grand. Yep. Oof. Yeah. 
That's crazy. Yeah, I wonder what she said. Well, the, this company that offered her the $25,000, uh, Cam Soda, they reached out and said, quote, given your interest in being filmed. Nice. We here at nice. Cam Soda. Yeah, that's pretty good. We here at Cam Soda would love to have you broadcast yourself on our triple X platform. <laughs> I would like to formally offer you up to $25,000 to perform a one hour long cam show on our site. Wow. That's smooth uh, entry there. That's I feel like that's akin to, you know, the guy sitting in the seat next to the chick in the movie theater and does the stretch like, oh, yeah, <sighs> you know, you get the arm going around the shoulder. Just the first right. contact yeah. there. Given your interest in being filmed. <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah, dude. Say, uh, given your interest in being filmed. <sighs> just, uh, yeah. What do you think? $25,000 to. Uh, oh, yeah. Get naked. It's great. Fantastic. Yeah. Morgan Osmond is her name, and she's attractive, sure, but she looks like every other model who desperately tries to look like a Kardashian for whatever fucking reason. Well, I mean, so, yeah. did she take the deal? Now, I'm not sure, but she'd be crazy if she didn't. I mean, it's not like she has to get dicked down for $25,000, you know? I mean, I guess, you know, the twenty five grand would be fairly easy to get in that, you know, in that circumstance. Yeah, so. take some clothes off. Yeah, I guess we'll see. Huh? I guess we'll see. And this is perhaps the best part of the whole thing. It was quickly pointed out that the Instagram famous lady was sitting in coach, not in first class, where you'd think a person as important and ignorantly rich as herself would be sitting. Right. I mean, if you're Instagram famous, aren't you going to be sitting in the front? Yeah. Or like on a private jet? I mean, I don't know how it works. Clearly, I'm not one of those people. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're not Instagram famous. I don't famous. even sit in coach. I just have to walk to all my destinations. They won't even take me. I try to hide in the wheel well. <laughs> yeah. <as> the... <laughs> Landing gear is going up. <laughs> oh, There's oh, oh, oh. Coop. Oh, there he, he caught his flight. Caught Literally it, caught on. it. Woo. You know, she's out there just running. He's like, "Hey, man, I got a <laughs> flight to catch." <laughs> just <laughs> jump in. Yeah. <laughs> well, enough of that. I'm just gonna pitch in my two cents here and say that I think we should loosen our Velcro frocks a little bit so we can be a little bit more comfortable for the segment that keeps this show afloat. Scott. What do you have for us? Yeah, I'm just going to pitch my two tents here as well. Ladies and gentlemen, birds and turds, thou bunch of remarkable renegades and esteemed listeners, it's time for the segmento más dulce que el mundo haya conocido. Or in other words, it's time for Trey Portray. All right. Thanks, ladies and gentlemen. Back for another rousing segment of Trey Portray. Our first story, which comes to us from WTOV9.com news slash local family. A family discovered pennies inside of a local McDonald's chicken nugget. Amidst safety concerns, the franchise said, hey, this is not a reflection of our local McDonald's. It must be a production issue. What do you think about that, man? That's pretty crazy. Hmm. I mean, how the hell would pennies get inside of a chicken nugget? How exactly. many pennies were in there? That's what I'm saying. So uh, according to the article, the customer found three pennies. Three pennies. Inside in of their nugget. food, which that's a high amount of pennies for a chicken that's a nugget. a lot of pennies. I'm surprised they hung on in the casing. So, you know. How do they do they bite into this chicken nugget and like break a tooth? Well, you'd think, right? Because that's typically like how you find a foreign object right. in your food, right? You're just eating along like in bliss, just like, ah, oh, tastes so good. And then it <laughs> You get something that right. should not be there. But in this case, the person is quoted as saying they picked up the nugget because it looked okay. And then they broke it open to find the pennies 
inside. Now, I have an issue with that, Coop, because who do you know that picks up a chicken nugget and then breaks it open before they eat it? I mean, it would. It just doesn't make sense. Who would? Who would do that? Only a monster. I've never met a person who would do such a thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh, yeah, right. Only a cannibal. Right? <laughs> right. I mean, why would you be like, huh? Let me show you this nugget right here. Uh, this... Yeah, this looks like a good mm. one. And then you break it open that's, and yeah, you find that's... the pennies in there. No, no, no. I I feel like I smell a rat with this one. Yeah. I'm gonna say that the people planted those three pennies. I'm gonna in agree. There. I'm gonna agree with that 100. They were just like, man, I got all these bills, you know, and they looked in their pocket and they, I only got these three pennies. <laughs> Chicken nugget. Oh, wait a minute. Well, 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 wait a minute, you know, and they just stuffed them in there. I think that's what happened. There were four pennies, and they're looking at them, and one was a wheat penny. So they're like, oh, I'm going to keep that one. Yeah, totally. Put the other three. But yeah, just based on that, that description, I mean, they did say like management's going to look into it, like the production area. They're going to see, you know, they're going to inquire, making inquiries, try to figure out if it is possible that that happened, but nah. I think the family threw it in there. They're yeah, trying to be- get some because quick cash. Listen to the quote that the person who quote unquote found it says she looked at the chicken nugget. It looked like it was fine, but then she broke it open and then saw a brown object which looked like a penny. Yeah. So why? I don't why? I don't understand. She said What was it about that chicken nugget that you're like, let me break this open? I know, and she's also playing on public fear she's trying to go that route my biggest fear quote my biggest fear was that someone was going to hand their child a chicken nugget in the back seat of their car in a chair seat and they could choke on something like this oh she my said. god just trying to play up the public sympathy you know try to Holy get a couple shit. extra bucks she went that route mcdonald's is going to wow. send her a couple vouchers and be like here get yourself a quarter pounder but uh yeah no you're not getting another cent <laughs> out of Unreal. us real you already got three yeah hey. <laughs> No, it's like when I'm eating cotton candy and I'm just, no, look, a half dollar. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah, right. I just pocket it and be like, thank you. Thank you, powers that be. Like, I'll take that. That's like gumball right there. Anyways, we'll we'll keep our ears and eyes on that story. See if she ever squeezes any more out of that, out of the old golden arches. Our next story is from news.sky.com slash story slash Tupac. Buzzword Tupac. Believe it or not, authorities have finally charged a man with the 1996 shooting of rapper Tupac Shakur. This is out of Las Vegas. This story was posted Friday the 29th. The hip-hop star, if you guys remember, who was aged 25 and 96 and was gunned down on the strip in Las Vegas. Nobody knew who did it at the time. Of course, there were theories, right? Everybody thought... They might know who it was, and I mean names. You know, Suge Knight. Names man. were thrown around. Suge Knight all Shug day long. Knight, yeah, implicated. Um, but apparently, a Nevada grand jury has now indicted sixty-year-old Dwayne Kef D. Davis on charges of murder with use of a deadly weapon. Um, it's been twenty-seven years, Coop. Yeah, it's been a long the time. Family, Tupac's family has been waiting for twenty-seven years for even just some motion. In the case, and this is a big move. Like, they're not just charging this person with accessory. They're saying, this guy, he did it. They're charging him with murder. And so, like, all of this came down because there was, uh, you know, a big fight between Tupac and his little, his crew and uh, the crew of the Davis, right? Exactly. Because Davis is the uncle of another individual named Orlando Anderson, who was involved in the fight with Tupac. The infamous fight, yes, in the casino. Yeah. There was a brawl. Yep. And yeah, this guy, his nephew was directly involved in that brawl. And the nephew later was 
I don't know if ever the listeners remember, but the the nephew was gunned down in an unrelated gang shooting a couple years later. All right. Um, but the uncle Davis, he survives, and at the time was a member of the Southside Compton Crips, and he even had a, a tell-all memoir called Compton Street Legend. And he said, "Oh yeah, I was in the car." He admits to he admitted to, being to it. In the car in that memoir and that came out and in uh, twenty nineteen. I know. So now a few years later, police are like, "All right, we got you. You told us we got you." Um, but it just goes to show the case is still open, and there's plenty of room for more facts to come to light. My personal take is I think they're going to take this guy. They're going to try to squeeze him. You know what I mean? They're going to yeah, say, absolutely. all right, you're 60 years old. We're going to keep you as uncomfortable as possible and see if we can squeeze any more details. Out yeah, of we you. want names because you know? they're going to keep him. He's going to be in prison for the rest of his life. Well, and he ain't getting no point. bail. You know what I mean? He's yeah. he's in there on charges of murder. They're not going to exactly. let him out. So 27-year-old case, too. So that just adds to it all. People are like really heated. Now that so many people are stoked right now, you know? So many people are so yeah. happy, like, oh, my God. Now we can finally put this Tupac mystery behind us, right? Right. Well, the Las Vegas police are saying they've all been reinvigorated. That's a quote right. from the police, is they've been reinvigorated by the information that he's been providing to the media in interviews during the release. Wow. Can you imagine them? They're all sitting there in the in the precinct. They're watching this <laughs> memoir come out on yeah. TV. He's like, yeah, I did it. I was right there. I was in the car. And the, they're like looking at each other, putting yeah, down their donuts, over. like, what did you just say that? Hey, man, let's just get him. Fucker, just admit it to the shit. Let's he just go. said he did it. Yeah, they're like, let's go, let's roll, boys. It's just like these tired cops, also sixty years old. <laughs> right, the same detectives. It's just like, oh man, let's get him. We gotta go. <laughs> yeah, just waiting. What a big break. Well, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see if any more names come up or you know, like who's protecting who. And yeah, they're they're shaking shaking the old hornet's nest. I'd say I'm stoked, man. I'm I'm grateful that this has come to light. Yeah, this has been a mystery for so long, and it's been such a hot topic for everybody. Oh man, yeah, it, it, for years. Well, Tupac, this one's for you, man. This, this one's, one's for, for you. you. California love, bro. Fuck yeah. Anyway, that leads us down to our last article of the segment. Uh, this is a different, sort of like a lighter theme, I'd say, but maybe a weirder theme. I don't know. I'll let you be the judge. But this also comes to us from the New York a man spent fifteen thousand dollars. I'm gonna fifteen thousand. Okay. On a high tech dog costume. I bet you weren't expecting to hear that following fifteen thousand dollars. That's gotta be quite a unique costume for fifteen thousand fucking dollars. Well, the emphasis is truly on the word costume because this man fully dresses up as this realistic looking dog. It looks kind of like a collie, if I had to sort of like a Shetland. Almost. Yeah, yeah. I'm but, looking at it. But yep, this exactly hyper-realistic costume, he gets in it, gets down on all fours, and he goes walking around Japan like this. And everybody is all about it. They're just like, oh, he's so cute. But he just does dog things all day long. Walks around, lifts his leg. He's panting. People are petting him. Like in the videos, like you can watch videos. Lifts of this. his legs so he's peeing. He's he, going and peeing on he's like buildings doing all and kinds stuff. of dog. If it's if a dog can do it, he's doing it. It looks so realistic. People are saying that it could be CGI. Oh my god! But I mean, this this costume is perfectly tailored to the human body, and it, like yeah, the quote of the article says the point is that the skeleton of a dog can be reproduced on the skeleton of a human. Crazy. And so this guy is looking super real as he's going along. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I was looking at videos, and it looks pretty legit. The skeleton 
it took 40 days and multiple revisions to create, but in the end, they produced a perfect replica of this dog that this guy can wear around. And yeah, a lot of people are like, what's what's the point? Like, this is pretty creepy. Yeah. Um, But also, it's got that disturbing factor where people just can't stop looking at it. You know, like, what's he going to do next? Right? So does he take it off when he gets home? Or is he just literally a dog now? <laughs> Apparently, he does remove the costume on occasion. But okay. when he goes out, he's the dog. He is, like, embracing oh. it. There's an interesting estimate here. The article goes on to say that there's at least 250,000 people in the United States that identify as furries, a subculture whose members enjoy dressing up as cartoonish animals, sometimes as a sexual fetish, but most often just as a fun escape. Well, this one isn't cartoonish at all. This no. one is like extremely, if you saw this thing, you would think, oh, that's a dog. But it's, oh, surprise, it's a human. Hyper-realistic. Yeah, pretty crazy stuff. Well, it'll be interesting to see like what he gets up to. Well, uh, Who knows? Maybe he'll only use his powers for good. But in my opinion, that remains to be seen. Right. We'll keep our free snouts on that story in the future to see what this guy gets up to and the full range of his antics. But that's it for today's segment of Trey. Yeah, yeah, these guys are working overtime. So last week we had learned that Edward had been working in a small, unventilated shop that he had built with some stuff called gunk that emitted a tremendous amount of toxic fumes that he apparently did not realize that he was breathing for upwards of 10 straight hours. At this point in the story, we know that Edward's mental health is declining rapidly, but despite this, his wife and family refused to take him to see a legitimate English doctor for help. Instead, she kept taking him to the Amish doctor, Dr. Terrell, who specialized in toe pulling and readjustments in the body's joints. And instead of prescribing medications, the doctor would regularly dole out blackstrap molasses for every ailment known to the Amish man. He must have just made his own molasses, right? Or he had like some partnership with a company that made it because he's like dishing it out left and right. You know, he's probably trying to sell it at the market. And nobody's buying. Oh, it. He's shit. like, nobody's buying my molasses. So yeah, he's like, it's getting oh, old. So he has to blackstrap molasses. He has to cycle out his Dude, new stash. Just the trick. Like, yeah, I just give this shit out. Yeah, it just it started out as regular, just brown molasses, but just over time, it's like oxidized to like just black. You know, he's like, oh, it's a uh, blackstrap molasses. Yep. Here you go. It's a cure-all. It's a cure-all. In regards to the partnership with, you know, medical companies and stuff, that's how the English doctors do it. You know, they get kickbacks from drug companies every time that they prescribe a medication. Is that legal? I'd say no, but they do it anyway. The doctors that prescribe Viagra, they're just like, oh, <laughs> here you go, man. This is going to help you out, man. It's going to help me out, too. A little kickback there. Let me know how it goes, buddy. Yeah, keep me in the loop. Tell me all about it, you know? Well, if you recall, Edward's friend, English David, had gone over to Edward's house to make a visit. This is essentially where we left off last week. So, there David was, buying a saw blade that Edward had agreed to sell him, and after completing that transaction, Edward then asked David if he wanted to see some pigs. Because who doesn't want to look at some pigs after a little business deal, right? Well, buddy, you know I'm there. Let me see that pig pen. Give me some Amish plow going on. You know what I'm saying? A little Amish oh, yeah. plow. You remember that one? Yeah, yeah. Last week. Yeah, yeah. Well, David didn't really care to see the pigs, but knew Edward well enough by then to know that he really just wanted to talk. 
They looked at the pigs in silence for about 20 minutes before Edward broke the silence to suddenly mention the motor he had been working on and asked David to look it over for him. Whoa! Say, buddy, uh, can you look at something for me? Well, let's hurry up and see that motor. Ed! My God! (laughs) The two men then ventured over to the machine shop, and as soon as they walked inside, the vicious face punch of the fumes from the gunk smacked David square in the face, knocking him back a few steps. David was instantly taken aback and asked Edward what the hell it was. Edward told David about this wonderful degreaser he had picked up called gunk, and that he, David, absolutely needed to start using it. David, knowing what gunk was, then explained to Edward that he needs to first dilute it with water before using it, and there needs to be proper ventilation. But Edward just shrugged it all off with a few quick deep breaths. Man, could you imagine, like, you see this guy using, like, just a straight bucket of this super powerful chemical, not diluted at all. You're like, what is, what are you doing, man, in this, like, non-ventilated space? Woof. Just talking to him and watch his eyes kind of go opposite directions slowly. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. You all right, buddy? Oh, yeah. You're getting a 360 view of the place. <laughs> well, shrugging off his own advice as well, David took this opportunity to interject religion. Christianity, to be exact. The two men ended up spending the evening in the shop talking about everything under the sun despite the fumes. And when they left the shop, they were both feeling dizzy and sick. But David felt pretty good about the conversation the two men had just had, knowing that it was just a matter of time before converting Edward. When Edward finally made it home, Katie looked at him and knew something was wrong. She questioned Edward, and he simply told her that he was dizzy and his head hurt, and he just needed to go to bed, which he promptly did without a further word. The next morning, Edward woke up at dawn as usual and shook Katie awake, exclaiming that he had a vision in the middle of the night. Oh, snap! Edward was more than excited to tell her all about it and began talking in a strange voice and told her he had an unequivocal vision from God. Oh boy, here we go. Confused as all hell, she looked at him half frightened and half intrigued and asked what he meant. Well, what do you mean, Edward? He told her he tried to kill the leader, but he would not die. I tried killing the leader, but he would not die. I could not conquer him. Confused, Katie asked, What leader, Edward? Bishop Shetler. I've got to kill the older leader to make room for the new religion. I couldn't do it because he wouldn't die. No matter how hard I tried, I couldn't kill him. The devil wants my soul. He's fighting Jesus for my soul. Katie knew Ed wasn't making any sense with his ridiculous ramblings, and so she did what she always did and called the always reliable doctor, Dr. Terrell, for another round of some good toe pulling and foot padding. Edward again filled out the slip of paper where he'd write down his name, his phone number, his weight, sock size, favorite suspenders, color, the works, and then the doctor would run this paper through his medical diagnosis machine for a very thorough examination of his answers. It's not a joke. No, folks, it's not. He's not kidding. This doctor, quote-unquote, really had this machine, and he relied on it for, like, way more than he should have. I mean, imagine that. Like, this is this is crazy. Yeah, and in theory, this machine spat out the results of the person's injuries and ailments and told Dr. Terrell the exact remedy for all of those. Um, I'm just going to go out on a tiny limb here, you know, just a tiny, and say the machine would print out the words blackstrap molasses. It's actually just a labeler. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a label maker every time. So, oh, blackstrap molasses again. Yeah, uh. no, exactly. It's just a, a letterhead. <laughs> yeah, this, this here says yeah, blackstrap molasses. Mm. But this time, his symptoms were listed as having no appetite and being forgetful. 
and being unable to sleep. The treatment would be a typical regimen of a shoulder rub, a right foot manipulation, and yet again, the cherry on top, the cure-all blackstrap molasses that everyone was ranting and raving about from one side of the community to the other. The following night was church night at Katie's parents' house, and everyone who was anyone would be there. Edward, without warning, told everyone present that an English friend and spiritual advisor of his had shown him the real path to God. He began to speak about leaving the Amish people so he could start following Jesus Christ, high priest and master. The bishop paused a moment and then informed Edward that he knew those types of men, talking about his English born-again Christian friend David. He said they were all the devil soldiers before asking Edward, Edward! Edward! Edward, are you joining these people? Edward responded with a desperate plea. Why are my own people against me? Katie quickly exclaimed, No one is against you, Edward! Edward, baby! Edward completely ignored Katie, and as if suddenly in his own mental world, he shouted out, I have had a vision. Don't tell him about your dream, Ed. Katie yelled out of fear. Ignoring his wife, Edward proclaimed, The leader of the new church will conquer the old leader. I tried, but I could not kill him no matter what I did. I kept trying for the new religion, but could not. The bishop rose from his chair as Katie said, He just had a dream. It was just a dream. No, it's a vision, a prophecy, shouted Edward. Bishop Shetler could handle no more. His ears had been violated like never before. He briskly walked toward the door, snatching his coat and hat before walking out without speaking a word. Everyone knew it was time to leave and followed him. Katie stood in tears as she was completely humiliated as her worst fears were coming true. A few weeks later, on the morning of March 23, 1992, Edward was refusing to get out of bed, and as he laid there, he was also spitting at the ceiling, his saliva and mucus raining back down onto his face. Katie persistently tried to get Edward to stop the disgusting act, but Ed ignored her. Of the phlegm that clung to the ceiling, he asked, What does it say? What is that saying to me? What is it saying? Katie, completely disturbed by the sudden new behavior of her husband, decided to summon Bishop Shetler and avoid the situation altogether. <sighs> yeah, I mean, that was probably the right move. What else are you going to do in that situation? You're like, okay. It's at the point now where he's just laying in bed, spitting on his own face. Like, I, my work here is done. Like, I can't do, I can't do anything else about this. I'm going to have to call in anyone else to deal with this. You know, she probably just threw out a napkin, placed it over yeah. his face. Here you go. Wipe your shit up. When Bishop Shetler arrived, he went to Ed and asked him, By God, my boy, why are you spitting all about like a madman? Edward would give an odd response. I think my heart is tearing loose. It's coming off. I can feel it. The bishop sent word to the elders and Ed's family immediately. He stated that Edward had been seized by the devil and that their presence was required as soon as possible to help pray against Satan. Whoo, dang. Shit just got real, real yeah, quick, man. Real Where's quick. the popcorn? Hand it out. Give me the butter. Once all the spectators arrived and popcorn was dished out, Edward began flailing around on his cot like a maniac and had to be physically restrained. The bishop explained that Edward was not sick, but had been taken over by the devil, and the only way to save him was to pray. Don't be fooled, everyone, for anything they might say. Don't be fooled by those who say such things, for bad company corrupts good behavior. Just don't be fooled. That man is not sick. No, Steve! Get back from there. You're too close. This man, Edward, has been taken over by the devil himself. Get out of there, man! 
dangerous fucking situation. Yeah, Steve, what are you doing? Get out of there, Steve. He then instructed everyone around him to form a circle around Edward as he lay on the cot and to pray for God to drive the devil right out of him. It didn't take long after the prayer circle started that Edward sat up in the cot. The prayers then stopped and he was helped to his feet and taken to another cot in the living room where he laid back down and fell asleep. And hours passed and the bishop was absolutely certain that he had defeated Satan and freed poor Edward's soul from certain damnation. He was wrong, of course. Edward awoke suddenly and threw himself on the floor and then began howling and running around the room on all fours doing tricks like a dog, spinning circles after his tail and shit. He'd even stopped to lick himself and pant. He was going through a whole range of emotions. A whole range of emotions? Jeez, that's, yeah, that's a light way of putting it. It was, would that be kawaii? <laughs> it's so kawaii. No, yeah, that's that's crazy. <laughs> Running around in circles, panting and shit. Yeah, damn. He was just going nuts. The gunk. Everyone who was still in the residence began to truly consider the possibility that Edward was simply insane, and it was decided that it was time for Edward to see an actual medical doctor. They would call in the one English doctor who they barely trusted, Dr. Craig Caldwell. When Dr. Caldwell got there, he asked Edward how he was doing. You know, I'm doing great. <laughs> Edward replied, Check to see if my heart is still there. I think it jumped to the right side. Dr. Caldwell started examining Edward with the stethoscope, but couldn't get any usable information due to Edward's erratic behavior. Edward started rambling about Jesus Christ and the evils of the bishop, and while the doctor examined Edward, Katie went and grabbed the blackstrap molasses that Dr. Terrell was giving him and asked if it was helping Edward at all. Dr. Caldwell responded, I don't think so, and then handed Katie a prescription for tranquilizers for Edward and told Katie to call him again if he wasn't feeling any better. Well, now he's just going to be tranked the fuck out, you know? I mean, he won't even know if he's feeling any better. He's just going to be, like, the same, but slower. The next day, on March 24th, 1992, Edward started out the day by laying on the bed and spitting at the ceiling in hope that he could read the messages that the phlegm would leave in his pattern. This was accompanied by an incoherent mumbling and very strange eye rolling. At this point, Katie was at the end of her Amish rope in dealing with Edward. Fed up and knowing that she couldn't help him on her own, she sent Edward's brothers off to call 911 from an isolated phone in a nearby shack. Taking steps. I like it. Go Katie. When the volunteer fire department arrived, which were all English folk, of course, Katie told the three EMTs that her husband was having a nervous breakdown and that he was in the house, but they needed to be careful because he was very dangerous. The EMTs carefully entered the home, and Edward began to scream, Don't kill me! He then began to run for the door on all fours, but before he could make it outside, his brothers jumped on him to physically restrain him as the EMTs looked on in shock. Once Edward stopped putting up a fight, he stood up and looked over at Katie. While giving a wry smile at her, he slowly walked toward the door without taking his gaze off of her as she only stood a couple feet away. Then, out of nowhere, Katie Mike Tyson Edward square in the face so hard that he fell to the ground on his back, shocking everybody to the core. The EMTs just stood there in complete disbelief as they watched on like, Damn, did that Amish lady just punch the shit out of that dude? Could you, could you even imagine? Like, stuff's already weird, right? Because you are you know about this guy. You've been told, like, what his behaviors are, and you're just kind of monitoring him. Like, what's up right. with this guy? Then his wife out of nowhere just decks him in the face. Whew. Full on, man. She must have been out in the barn, like, practicing boxing, hitting the fucking hay bales and shit. Two, two, two. Left, right, right, right. Uppercut. 
Yeah, she was probably churning butter with her yeah. bare fists. She'd just be out there, punch, 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 punch. Oh, my punch, God. Punch, punch, punch. Just, like, churning Turn that. Churn it. Churning that butter. Snapping back to the task at hand. It would take seven men to get Edward on the gurney, where he was fastened down with straps, for his safety. Katie was then informed that Edward was going to go to the hospital in Erie, Pennsylvania, and she would need to arrange transportation to meet him there. On the way to the hospital, the EMTs radioed in the situation, and when they arrived there, there were two security guards and a doctor waiting at the entrance to the Hammett Medical Center. The doctor, however, was a bit disturbed that Edward was being restrained, because the man he saw before him was very calm and very cooperative as he was taken out of the ambulance. The doctor you know, had the restraints removed so Edward could walk into the hospital on his own. Just as Edward was being led toward an examination room, Katie and the family arrived. The doctor in charge would locate Katie and lead her to the room where Edward was. Katie was then asked why her husband was there, in which Katie told him about his recent behavior and his mental state. She explained that he might be having a mental breakdown. After a bit of jibber-jabber and initial observation of Edward, the doctor told Katie she was just overreacting and that he had other patients to attend to but would be back to give Edward a more thorough looky-loo. Katie was at a loss for words, and felt that she's been treated like the one exhibiting mental problems. When the doctor closed the door behind him, Edward looked at Katie with a stone-cold glare and said, What are you trying to do? Kill me? You trying to get rid of me? And I, I know why. You and my brother are against me. I know about you and my brother. At that point, Katie jumped up and ran out of the room to find the doctor. When the two returned, Edward was laying on his back, spitting at the ceiling. This, at this point, has become a bit of a habit, you know? He's just like, any chance he gets, just flop on the back and spit up at the ceiling. Crazy. There might be something to it. Should try it out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to do I'll be right back. When the doctor saw this side of Edward, he was quick to place him in a wheelchair and move him to the mental ward of the hospital. Edward didn't necessarily go voluntarily, but he didn't have much of an option. His room, however, was immaculate. Oh, yeah. Okay. What are we talking about here? We're in a mental facility, but what? He, he's got, like, ornate furniture or something, rich fabrics, like furniture made of dark woods, like mahogany, yeah. with like walnut inlaid designs and whatnot. Yeah, upholstered with velvet. Yeah. And brocade, and floors just marble with <laughs> a panda pelt rug. Yeah, right. There's, like, vaulted ceilings and, like, an intri- intricate cornices of gargoyles, and, like, there's chimeras up there, vases, and just ornaments everywhere, and just... Statues and yeah, Masaccio paintings, a few Botticellis, a couple of Georgia O'Keeffe's, <laughs> just big windows for natural light. Oh, yeah, know, heavy drapes made of the vacuna wool from Peru. Totally. Oh, and most, most importantly, the focal point of the entire room ah, the fireplace, right? Right, yes, it's decorated mantelpiece, just crowded with Henry Moore sculptures, just crackling. The fires is crackling, you know. Oh, sounds nice, dude. I want to go. Good for him. Yeah, good for him. Edward's room was a far cry from such a description. His room, <laughs> yeah, who would have guessed? Oh. His room was plain white and also windowless, and it had a small plastic-covered mattress that was just much too short for him. Damn. What do you do? Edward must have been acting up a little bit because at this point, four men physically restrained him as a doctor shot him up with a tranquilizer of some sort. You know what? He's probably just sitting there chilling, minding his own business. Right, The right, doctor right. went in and just all jabby, jab, jab with the tranks. Like, here you go. And he was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, oh, <laughs> yeah, he's just oh. sitting there. Like, hey. They're like, hey, he's awake. <laughs> yeah, get, get him. him. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's happening to me? <laughs> oh, God. What? <laughs> 
The next day, Edward was given a handful of antipsychotics and antidepressants and was moved to a private room. And I can only imagine he was hella doped up on Thorazine, a very, very powerful tranquilizer that they loved to use back then. Ah, yeah, the Thorazine drip. And he was definitely just drooling all over himself as a result, as they always do. But that afternoon, Katie and the family were able to visit poor old Edward. When they finally got to him, Katie was beginning to think that the English doctors had actually cured him. And word got around, and David Lindsay heard about the hospitalization and strongly felt that it was the gunk fumes responsible for Edward's erratic behavior. He also thought that the Amish were overreacting by sending him to the hospital. He's like, yeah, this dude's been locked up for 10 hours at a time in a room with these volatile, hazardous fumes. He's obviously going mental because of that. Yeah, I mean, he was right on that part. But he also thought that they were overreacting by sending him to a hospital. Oh, well, that's true, yeah. So, you're right. He got he got one out of two. He got 50%. He got 50% correct there. What, what are you guys doing bringing him to a hospital? He doesn't need to go to a hospital. What are you bringing him here for? This is a hospital. He's fine. <laughs> hey, he's just going a little fine. mental. <laughs> but he went and visited Edward and thought that he seemed perfectly fine, figuring that his theory of the gunk making him ill was correct. David also saw a window of opportunity and continued to fill Edward's head with more thoughts of his own beliefs and that the bishop was indeed an evil man. And Eddie probably couldn't even ascertain his left from his right, you know? He probably wasn't even aware of his surroundings. No, any time he had a lucid moment, the doctors would rush in and stab him with some more tranquilizers. (laughs) The guy couldn't even... Couldn't even put two thoughts together. Poor fucking guy. And then this David guy is just like, nice. Just a very soft, malleable mind I can infiltrate. Yeah, yeah. Every time they leave, he walks in. He's like, hello, Edward. Now, back to our talks about the evil bishop. Edward would be released from the hospital on April 28th, 1992. And since the Amish don't believe in medical insurance, this involuntary trip cost $8,000, which is about $17,000 today. The doctor would prescribe him with Pemelor, which is an antidepressant, and Nevane, which is used to treat mood disorders such as schizophrenia. So that's probably good. The doctor's prescribing him something that's useful in, in those ailments. Yeah, they're trying to help him. Edward was also scheduled to do some outpatient sessions with a local psychiatrist, and for the first few weeks, he was going to those sessions. Edward complained that his meds he was taking were giving him sores in his mouth and drying up all of his usual energy. The psychiatrist decided to switch his medications to Symmetril and Restoril instead. Symmetrol helps control problems with increased dopamine levels in certain parts of the body and is usually used to treat Parkinson's disease and forms of influenza. So that's kind of interesting that he'd be prescribed that. And Arresteril is a benzodiazepine used to treat insomnia accompanied with anxiety. Again, these two drugs are in two entirely different drug classes than the two he was originally prescribed, which he was also taken off of, which... That's not good, man. This dude's hella suffering from schizophrenia. You put him on a couple drugs that might be useful for like a couple weeks, whatever, and then just switch the drugs instantly to something that is completely different. That's not good. Not at all, especially because it takes time for those kinds of medications to take effect. Yeah. And then you're just going to throw something else on top of that? Like this poor, this dude like didn't even have a chance, bro. No, man. Yeah. Didn't even have a chance. And these medications didn't seem to help anything at all. And Edward was tired of being a guinea pig for the English folk. Katie was also questioning the English again and their use of medications to treat Edward and thought that maybe, just maybe, they should have stuck with Dr. Terrell and his top-notch toe pulling. Oh, yeah. I bet he was, after getting all shot up every day, I bet he was missing that black strap molasses for sure. 
April 28th was supposed to be Edward's fourth psychiatrist appointment, but he didn't show up and stopped taking all of his medications. Katie wholly supported his decision, but within days, he slipped right back into his weird depression and psychotic episodes. Now, everyone, remember, this is a PSA. Take your medications as prescribed and be observed by your doctors regularly. But we don't like Big Pharma, so bad. Big Pharma bad. But remember to take those pills. Got to take them. But also, talk to your doctor and have a thorough discussion about what these medications do to you. Yeah, absolutely. But as time passed by, the economy only worsened, as did Edward. It started with him pulling his hair and yelling, It's on fire! Then he started telling Katie that he could hear Satan's voice in his head telling him, Kill her! Save yourself! <laughs> nice. Yeah, Satan's bane. As you can imagine, Edward wouldn't sleep all that well, and he would develop the nasty habit of scratching himself so roughly that he would bleed. Did... Does not everyone do that? I thought that was I thought that was normal. Yeah, I bleed. I scratch my balls. They bleed all the time. <laughs> That's just life. Part of life. <laughs> and these symptoms that he was exhibiting are clear indications of psychosis caused by schizophrenia. They are called tactile hallucinations. And the person experiencing these things say that it feels like they are being touched or burned or an intense tingling sensation on any specific area and also profuse itching. May 4th would come around and it would be another nasty day. Edward told Katie that he wanted to end all the torture by shooting himself. Woo! Heavy. Damn. Katie was obviously terrified and decided that it would be best to hide all of their hunting rifles and would do so by hiding them out in the shed where they kept the buggy, which made her feel much safer. And it's probably a good thing because later that night, Eddie lost his hand-churned butter tarts. Uh-oh! <laughs> I loved it, that was great Lost his butter tarts Just lost his butter tarts First, he smashed his fist through a window Before going out onto the porch While saying he was going to kill himself By jumping to his death As he started to climb to the roof As this was happening Katie's parents were coming down the driveway Only to bear witness to the unraveling scene Edward was obviously in no mood to talk to his in-laws And jumped off the roof But not with the intention of killing himself And just as soon as he took the leap he hit the ground running, leaving a trail of dust. And soon, Edward's father and brother would show up at the house and were soon on their way chasing crazy old Edward down the dusty road. They would lose sight of him, but would quickly spot him about 100 yards away, passed out, face down, ass up in the dirt and gravel. <laughs> His father and brother then loaded him into their buggy and trotted him back to home. This is so crazy, it's cartoonish. Like, you can just see the scene in an old movie or, like, some weird, like family i don't know like it's just crazy that this actually happened now you think like all right this guy needs to go to the doctor immediately right scott absolutely like i'd be that would be my first thought as he's climbing up to the roof and be like nope 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 we gotta get this guy to a hospital for sure well that's exactly what they'd do they would take him to the doctor immediately good get him in there get him some actual help already yeah man Get him some help. Katie took Edward to none other than Dr. Terrell for some intensive oh, joint manipulation no. and toe pulling and a bit of blackstrap molasses to top it all off once again. Ugh, I have no words. The go-to. The next morning, Edward would wake up in the same shitty mental state that he was in the day before. And again, he punched out a window. After that, he started running around the house chanting religious verses to himself in a total manic state, just full psychosis. Katie's mother arrived in the late morning to help Katie deal with Edward. She expressed to her daughter that Edward needed some help, badly, some real English medical help. Katie was losing it. She was totally conflicted, but did not want Edward going back to the Hammett Medical Center. 
so she and her mother would reach an agreement to send him to Jones Memorial Hospital in Jamestown, New York. They hoped that someone there would be able to give Edward the help that he needed. That evening, they arranged for an English man to drive Edward and his family to Jamestown. While Edward was fast asleep on his cot, dreaming of running through fields of sunflowers with his favorite machines, hand in hand, and setting out a picnic under the large oak tree up on the hill, feeding each other bites of rhubarb pie and telling each other how much they love one another. It was during this wonderful reprieve that Edward's father realized that there was going to be no way to get Edward to go peacefully into the van. Mm. So he and two of Edward's brothers resorted to bum-rushing Edward, jumping on him in a frenzy with knees to the ribs, and then hog-tying him, which unfortunately woke him up from his dream right before the machine's oil valve burst, drenching him in sweet, sweet oil. I'm trying not to laugh because it's just terrible like i feel bad for this guy you know what i mean like it's just tough tough stuff you know it's horrible but damn that's a funny image i'm i'm not gonna lie just jump on him like yeah kneeing him (laughs) just kneeing him in the ribs he's not even awake (laughs) just fully passed out like some family doped up in medication right damn be a rough christmas (laughs) gotta wait till he's asleep yeah wait till he's asleep and we'll knee him in the ribs well, get him. <laughs> that's how they do it in Amish world. I guess. It's an Amish good morning. That is, yeah, that's an Amish good morning. I love you. It can, it's a good morning and a good night. It works for <laughs> yeah. both. It's just all bruised up all the time. <laughs> God, your family, they love you so much. As soon as they were getting the ropes nice and tight around his wrists and ankles, Edward was finally wide awake and started screaming, as you would expect someone to do in such a situation. And just a few minutes later, the three men were dragging a crazy, disheveled, and screaming hogtied Edward out of the house and into that same English man's van who was mentioned before. Now, if that wasn't bad enough to be hogtied while you're sleeping, it would take a full one and a half hours to drive to the hospital. Oh! As it just so happens, though, Edward would fall right back asleep once they were on the road. That's all he needed. Just a little car ride. Yeah, just put him out. Plus, he was probably exhausted. All the mental energy he's been expending. Oh, like, yeah. I'm sure he was just yeah. exhausted. Conked. Edward wouldn't wake up until he had pulled right in front of the hospital and stopped. But when he woke up, he just remained calm and silent as the three men removed him from the vehicle, as was, and carefully set him face down on the concrete with his wrists tied to his ankles behind him. Katie and his father went into the hospital and returned with two hospital staff 20 minutes later. So he's just laying there for 20 minutes, like hogtied in front of the hospital. Yeah, rough piece. The staff were shocked at seeing this hogtied man lying on the ground and ordered the men to untie him. They did so and lifted him up to his feet and then walked him inside of the hospital. The staff wasted no time in taking Edward to an examination room, but on the way, Edward dropped to the ground and ran on all fours like a severely injured three-legged polydactyl cat. He was so wildly ferocious that he knocked over chairs, breaking glass in the process. Dude loves breaking glass, I've noticed. That's like the third time that day. Oh, shit. He ran into a room and got his hands on a full tray of medical utensils and an IV stand before hospital staff were able to get him subdued. Eventually, he would calm down enough that he was left alone in a room. Edward was only asleep for about 20 minutes before he leapt from the bed and started ripping the medical appliances and cabinets from the walls again. Again, hospital staff would have to wrangle him, and as soon as they could... A psychiatrist administered 200 milligrams of Melaril, which is an antipsychotic used mostly for schizophrenia. Once Edward was calm enough to talk, the psychiatrist asked him, What seems to be the problem? 
I've got a bad case of liver cancer. I saw light so bright, I thought I was in hell. Do you know my brother? Um, no. When my brother blew into Katie's cunt, I saw an angel fly out of her mouth. Whoa! And ladies and gentlemen, these are what real a quotes. freaking out of, crazy out of story. I mean, just, oh my, could you imagine? The doctor's just like, what am I walking in on right now? After hearing that last statement, the doctor instantly gave Edward another injection. This time, it was two milligrams of Ativan, which is another benzodiazepine used to treat anxiety. He was then placed in a small padded room. Damn, this guy's just getting the full freaking experience, like deluxe. Above five star. This is like elite treatment. It's like, boom, here you go again. Boom, here's another one. Oh, you want another one? Boom. Edward was denied all visitors for the first week that he was in the hospital. He was also given a hefty regimen of lithium, which is a mood stabilizer typically used to treat bipolar disorder, and more congentin and melaril, but no blackstrap molasses. Yeah, well, that's what they messed up. There were also group therapy sessions that he was forced to attend on a daily basis. And on the eighth day of his stay, he was finally able to see his family. He seemed happy to see them and talk to them, and just to have them around after eight days of all this intense shit happening to him. Katie and the family grew worried when the staff informed them that Edward would be released in two days. They thought it seemed too soon. But on May 15, 1992, Edward was discharged from the Jones Memorial Health Center and was a free man once again. And just like the last time he left the hospital, he had several prescriptions to fill and outpatient appointments to attend. You think this guy is in a place where he's going to follow this treatment regimen? I mean, they're giving him all this stuff and they're telling him what he needs to do, but he's just not in a place where he can do that without like full-time care, you know? Yeah, and he's not getting any care from this community at not all. Not at all, no. And this time, it only took four days before Edward stopped taking the medications and going to the groups. And again, he had Katie's full backing as she simply did not trust English medicine from the very start. In June, David Lindsay decided to go see his man, Edward. He hadn't seen him in a while and was anxious to carry on with Edward's transformation. When he got there, he skipped all the formalities, such as a hello, and went straight to preaching about redemption and the evils of the bishop and all this and that. The rest of the summer, Edward was depressed, but wasn't acting like he had before. Katie would take him back to old Dr. Terrell's office many times throughout that summer and fall, and wholeheartedly believed that he was the only hope in Edward's recovery. As winter rolled in and everyone was hunkered up indoors, Edward's health was not improving, and Katie was growing increasingly angry with him for not taking that gosh darn blackstrap molasses that was supposed to be curing of him all of his ailments. Interestingly, his own father did not understand why Katie was bringing Edward to Charms and Trinkets Terrell instead of an actual medical doctor. He knew that his son was a walking time bomb about to go off at any moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, he's watching his kid and he's like, he's not getting the help he needs. Like, eventually, I feel like as a parent, you're supposed to figure that out. And he kind of figured it out. But Katie's <laughs> just like, oh, not the, de- not the doctor. It's crazy that, like, Katie is the one that gets to make the decision. Like, why can't his father be like, well, I'm taking you here. Totally. Like, get in the wagon, let's go. Yeah. You know? Get in the wagon. Get on the oxen. Yes. I'm taking We're you going. in, son. We're going home. Thankfully, they made it through the winter and into spring. And on March 16th, 1993, Edward had a long talk with his father who was legitimately worried about him and really wanted him to go back to an English doctor. Edward would have apprehensively agreed to this so long as he would not be put back in the psych ward or a hospital for another extended stay. 
And yeah, I wouldn't want to go back to a psych ward or an extended hospital stay. I mean, that's... Oh, where people are going to hold you down and start shooting you up full of shit? No way, The dude. doctor runs in every chance he gets and just jabs you? No. Fuck no. And later that day, Mr. Gingrich called a meeting with Edward's brothers to figure out how to go about helping Edward, because his brothers were also concerned. So what do they do? They decide to bring Edward to a man named Jacob Troyer. Troyer was a 46-year-old Amish man who was rumored to be a healer, much like Dr. Terrell. While at first Mr. Gingrich was reluctant, the brothers would soon convince their father to give this Jacob Troyer a try. The next day, they would make the 100-mile journey to the Smicksburg settlement where this guy lived near Puxatawney, Pennsylvania, which as of 2020 had a population of between 49 and 57 people, making up about 25 Amish households of around 14 families. This would also be Katie's birthday, March 17, 1993. When they finally arrived at Troyer's house, Edward was already much worse. Katie ran to the door of Jacob and yelled, My husband is sick! This is an emergency! Troyer invited them all in, and as soon as Edward was inside, he dropped to the floor and was running around the room on all fours just as he had at the hospital. While he was running around, he was also admiring the floors and saying, This is nice. This is all real nice. These floors. These grooves. These lines here, and there, and over there. Oh, look at that over there. Wow. Troyer's young son looked around in discomfort at everyone before deciding that it was time for him to leave the situation and headed upstairs before Edward quickly ran over to him and yelled, Do I look normal? Can you tell there's something wrong with me? What is happening right now? Oh, wow, look at that floor. The boy was freaked out and ran up the stairs as fast as possible. At the same time, Troyer turned to Katie with bugged out eyes and told her, Take this man to a mental hospital. He needs to be put in a mental ward. I cannot help him. Katie begged Troyer to at least look over Edward and do his thing, and reluctantly he agreed. When they came out of the examination room, Troyer handed Katie three bottles of herbs, and Katie handed Troyer $340 for his services. As they made their way back to the car outside, Troyer looked at Katie and told her, Your husband has a mental problem. Take him to the hospital. I'm afraid of a suicide. Goodbye and good luck. Yikes. Man. Well, I mean, at least people are telling it to them straight at this point. They're like, hey, man, this guy is on his last limb, you know? There have been multiple people that have been like, "That's true." go to a hospital now. They're like, dude, why doesn't he have help? And then anytime they go, they just don't follow the treatment. Man, it's crazy. On the way home, Edwards would fall deep into his psychosis. He would grab his scalp, pulling out his hair and saying, Oh my God, my brain is boiling over. After some unbearable moments of this in the crowded car, Edward would finally be calmed down and would actually drift off to sleep once one of his brothers started to rub his feet. <laughs> okay. Um, I guess whatever works at that point, right? That's going to be pretty comfortable. A car ride, because you never really get a ride in a car, so it's like kind of, it's really different. And it is comfortable when you're just riding in a car, you know? And you're getting a foot rub. That's like, yeah. Whew. Foot rub on top of that? Damn. Yeah, dude. Five star. The following day, Amish families were coming from Ontario, eastern Pennsylvania, Ohio, and New York to celebrate another marriage. Noah Stutzman, the headman of the mill, was marrying an Amish girl from that same community that day. Katie didn't inform Edward of the celebration due to his worsening mental state and general well-being. Edward would wake up around 9 a.m. the next morning and had a lot going on in his mind. He decided to go see his father to talk things over and to try to make sense of any of his thoughts. Edward didn't knock when he arrived at his father's house. 
Instead, he walked right in and pulled up a chair. And right as his dad walked in the room, Edward yelled, Katie's trying to poison me. Everyone loves you, replied his father. Even God hates me. It's my chemicals. They are out of balance. His father wasn't sure how to respond to that at first, but then he replied, The best thing is to ask God to forgive you, Ed. Ed shot back. God won't, because I am possessed by the devil. I can hear the devil's voice, a woman's voice, not God's. I don't hear God. You will if you listen for it, Ed, his father told him. I am listening, but all I hear is the devil. After that amazing father-son talk with his pops, Edward simply headed back home. Katie told Edward that an Englishman was on his way to bring him over to Dr. Terrell's. And of course, Edward would agree, but he had actually begun to despise Dr. Terrell's techniques. And as soon as the doctor walked into the room, Ed shot out, Look, if you can't cure me, just say so. I'm giving you liver pills. I don't want the liver pills. Take the pills. I don't want the liver pills. Give me something stronger for my headaches. I can't go on like this. No, drugs are not the answer. No drugs. Take the pills. After his very unprofessional outburst, he then massaged Edward's scalp and sent him on his way with a bunch of liver pills. <laughs> He's such a psychotrop. Oh, man. While Edward and Katie were off at the quote-unquote doctor's house, Danny, one of Edward's brothers, was watching their children at Danny's house. When they pulled into his brother's driveway, Katie asked the English driver if he and his girlfriend wanted to come in for lunch, which they could not oppose. The thing was, was that Katie had planned out how everyone could enjoy the wedding without interference from Edward's psychotic outbursts. The plan was for Katie and Edward's brothers to take turns essentially babysitting him throughout the day. Everyone was aware of this plan, except for Edward. And the plan was going well until someone slipped up about the wedding. And Edward suddenly spoke. I'm coming with you tonight. You cannot go. You're too sick. Katie responded. But I have to. Why? You don't even like these things. It's the only way I can be saved. No. We've talked about this and you're not going. You need your sleep. I know who you are. You're the devil. Everyone was silent for several minutes until Edward broke the silence in the best way he could and said, there goes the moon right into the sea. The English neighbors looked at each other and decided it was time to get out of there. Yeah, I would too. I'd be like, okay. Pretty scary. Uh, see you later. Um, good luck. You guys have a good day. Yeah, have a good one now. After that whole mess was settled, Danny took everyone back to Katie and Edward's house. After getting home, Edward said out loud, I don't want to hurt anybody. I love everybody. And then went upstairs where he fell asleep. After a short nappy poo, he woke up and stumbled into the kitchen, all the while yelling at Katie that he has to go to the wedding. It was the only way to save his soul. No, you're too sick. You will not take your medicine. Because you're trying to poison me. I have the devil in me, and you are trying to kill the devil. We're trying to help you, his brother Danny replied. Edward gave up on the fight and went back to his cot to lay down. Danny turned to Katie and told her that he had chores to go finish, and he would be back as soon as they were done. Katie was standing in front of the sink while the kids played on the floor behind her. She turned around to look at them and was completely startled to see Edward towering over her, staring at her. She asked him what was wrong. Edward ignored her in silence and took a step back and then punched her as hard as he could square in the face. Katie fell to the floor where blood began pouring from her nose. She remained conscious and looked up at Edward and asked, 
Why did you do this? I am the devil. The children started to cry, and their son Danny stood motionless in fear. Katie would yell to Danny to go get his uncle because Ed was very sick. He would quickly run outside to go get his uncle, leaving Edward standing over Katie. The younger siblings were too afraid to do anything as they sat on the floor off to the side. Danny would soon reach his uncle's house and run inside yelling that his father was attacking his mother. His uncle knew immediately that this was a serious situation, given that his nephew just ran half a mile in the snow barefoot to tell him. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. He quickly ran outside and jumped on a horse without a saddle like a real man would. When he arrived and ran into the house, he was overcome at the scene in front of him. Katie was laying motionless on the floor with Edward sitting on top, ruthlessly beating his fist into her face. What are you doing? Get off of her! yelled Dan. Edward paused and slowly rose to his feet and casually said, This is what she deserves. And then Edward stood up and started stomping on Katie's face as hard as he physically could, blood splattering all over the kitchen. As he was doing so, Danny ran over and knocked his brother off of Katie's lifeless body. They wrestled for a moment on the floor but separated fairly quickly. The look in Edward's eyes told Dan that he needed to get out of there immediately to go get help or he was going to be next. Dan jetted from the house, jumped on the horse, and headed to the nearest English farm only minutes away. The man would graciously lead Danny to the phone where he called 911. Just before he ended the call, he told them he would meet them at the Frisbee Town intersection. After his brother left the house, Edward decided to put on his work boots and went back to crushing Katie's skull with his foot. His two young children were standing off to the side in shock as they watched the horror unfold before their young eyes. The right side of Katie's head and face began to cave in and her crushed brain spilled out onto the floor. Edward then dropped down to his knees and started undressing Katie's body until she was completely nude. He then went and grabbed a steak knife and made a 7-inch incision in her lower abdomen, then reached inside of her body and removed her lungs, both of her kidneys, her stomach, her liver, her spleen, her bladder, her uterus, and her heart. He then stacked all of them into a pile and stuck the knife into the pile. At this point, he seemed satisfied with the brutal act and proceeded to wash up in the sink. He then put his Bible into the fireplace and told his children to put on their coats because they're going to head over to their grandfather's house as Edward was planning to set the house on fire. Dark stuff. Just makes a tower out of her organs and... I mean, just the kids. I think the thing that gets me is like his kids are standing there watching this whole thing happen. Like, that's just so insane. That is just horrible. They literally watched the whole thing happen. I mean, this guy literally a seven inch incision. Okay, that's not very big. And he literally reached his whole arm into her cavity and just pulled out her organs, bro. Yeah, and one then, by one. Yeah, one by one, stacking them up or whatever into a pile and stabbing a knife in there. And like her head is crushed. Man, like, and then he just casually is just like, hey, we're leaving. Officers of the Pennsylvania State Police were dispatched and were around 20 minutes away. Paramedics were told to wait at the intersection as Danny had requested and told not to enter the house until the state police had arrived. The paramedics weren't too happy about that request, but they soon noticed Edward walking toward them with a little girl in his arm and a little boy holding his hand. When Edward approached the paramedics, one of them asked where he was headed. I'm going to my dad's house. Where's your wife? You wouldn't understand, was Edward's only response as he strolled on by. The paramedics made a quick decision. 
One of them would follow Edward and the others would go to the home. And as soon as those paramedics entered the house, they were hit with the smell of death. They walked into the kitchen and all of them stood there in silence and disbelief. Katie's naked and gutted body was spread out on the floor. Half of her head and face smashed in, her organs in a pile with a knife stabbed into them. It was more than a shock to all of them, but they knew that there was nothing that they could do to save her. I mean, the paramedics are used to high-stress situations where time is of the essence, but to walk in on that scene yeah. and see how far gone it was and then realize that not only is this what you're looking at, but the person just walked past you and onward to somebody else's house and just all the feelings that are associated with that. I mean, I think, yeah, it would freeze some people just right then and there. Like your brain would just short circuit for a second. Like that guy's walking out there right now with two kids too, with two children. This just happened. Wow. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you'd kind of look at each other and be like, what's our next move? (sighs) As a paramedic, I guess one is following him, so... But someone capable of that? Because that's the thing, right? You're not just looking at a dead woman. You're also thinking, this person who I just saw, who's now walking outside, is capable of doing this. We need to go out there right now and get this guy. And especially, like, the the degree of the brutality of the murder, like, extensive. So this guy is, like, extremely dangerous. Exactly. Exactly. Robert Rowles, a Pennsylvania state trooper, was the first officer to arrive at the intersection to meet up with Danny. While Danny was telling the officer everything that had happened, Edward walked over and told the trooper, I'm the bad man you're looking for. Rowles grabbed Edward's arm, took him over to his patrol car, and put him in the back seat and called in for backup. After he did that, he asked Edward to step out of the car to remove his blood-drenched boots and coat. When Edward was taken off his coat, a bloody piece of Katie's flesh fell out of a sleeve and onto the ground, which landed right in front of the trooper's feet. Rowles then commanded Edward to get back into the car immediately. And as you can imagine, word spread quickly, and within, and within the hour, homicide detectives, crime scene investigators, and the media were all crawling over the Brown Hill settlement. Dan, after giving a statement to the police, made his way to the house where the marriage reception was still being held, and nobody there knew of what happened yet. When he walked inside, everyone could tell something was up. Dan then announced, Can I have your attention? Edward Gingrich just killed Katie. He killed his wife. Back at the police station, where Edward was transported, he was read his Miranda rights, and the police started their interview. Unfortunately, this was not recorded at all, and afterward he was taken to Cambridge Springs for his initial arraignment. Right around 1 a.m., they put Edward into another interrogation room where an officer placed a tape recorder on the table in front of Edward. The investigator turned the recorder on and began to talk. Do you know what a tape recorder is? Asked the investigator. "Uh Uh-huh. I explained to you and I read you that form that says you have the right to remain silent and whatnot. You remember that? Do you understand? Ed looked at the investigator for a moment before shaking his head no. You do not? You understand that stuff you say can be held against you and what went on today? Do you understand that? How do you mean? Well, the things you say can be held against you in a court of law. Do you understand that? Yeah, and religion. Law and religion. And you have the right to an attorney. Do you understand what an attorney is? Yeah, but in our religion, we will not have done that. We have to go by the law, and the law says I have to tell you this. Do you understand? No. You have the right to an attorney. You understand that? Yeah, but what I'm thinking, my mind is confused. I'm going to tell you that right now. 
But the reason we don't is the number. The social security number? Because of the beat? The beat somewhere. The computer, in fact. We can track our minds. Ed was clearly confused and was having a really hard time staying focused as the interrogation went on. Okay, said the investigator. But let's get back on track, and back on track is that you understand what I've explained to you on that piece of paper. Yeah? I explained you do not have to talk to me if you don't want to. And you understand that? Yeah. Okay, I want to try and understand exactly what happened. Why you killed Katie. For some reason, I think we could still save her. No, we cannot save her. Katie is dead. You know Katie is dead? Yeah, I know. Why did I kill her? I felt it was a game. A game for who? A game for us people. All the people? Yeah, not just my religion. Why? Because if I can get back on track, it will come yet. Well, maybe you can explain to me why you felt that you had to remove Katie's brain and work your way from the brain down. Explain that to me. You know how we, the human beings, were made? Yes, from the top down. That is right. I had it in my mind that if I worked from the top down... Ed paused, then continued. I'm so lost. I don't know what to say. The rest of the interrogation lasted for about an hour, and Edward was trying his hardest to explain the murder and his justifications for it and his mental issues prior to the murder. Most of what he said was strange and unintelligible. But although Edward wasn't making much sense, the investigators were happy with the outcome. They had considered the case closed and had Edward taken to the Crawford County Jail, where he was placed in a holding cell by himself while they got back to the game of Go Fish they were playing before they were interrupted. Yeah, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, I'm sure for the police, it was a very open and shut case. Like, as gruesome and shocking as it was, they're like, this guy killed his wife in a brutal fashion. He then admitted to it. Our job here is done, yep. boys. Wrap it up. Case closed. After the autopsied Katie's body, her remains were taken to Edward's father's house. In a normal situation, they would hold a wake at the decedent's residence, but due to the circumstances, it was decided that the wake would be at Edward's father's. Katie's family washed and prepared her body for the procession. If Katie would have died in a regular manner, they would have put her in a wedding dress for an open casket, but instead they wrapped her in a black linen and placed her in a closed pine coffin. They then placed the coffin upon two chairs, one at either end, for the procession the following day. While Katie's mother and sisters were taking care of her body, the men were out digging Katie's grave. Yeah, the family is just so solemn with it, too. I mean, just trying to be... You can, you can tell there's a sense of reverence there, probably because of the manner in which she died. Everyone's just like, what a horrible way to go. Nobody deserved that. And so no matter what had transpired before that, like leading up to that moment, I feel like they were determined to do what they could for her body. That's got to be so hard, man. Like, oh, they had to clean. They had to clean her body, you know, and get it ready. Yeah. It's terrible. As Katie's funeral was being carried out, Edward was being moved from the jail to a state hospital in North Warren, Pennsylvania, for psychiatric evaluation. On the way there, he was adamant that the officers were taking him to the woods to be executed. I mean, it's clear that Edward, he, he's so far down the hole now. He's, there's no coming back, right? Yeah. I mean... Notice. I'm surprised I'm surprised that anything coherent was coming out of him whatsoever. Only 41 hours after Katie was brutally murdered, 
Amish folk from numerous states had heard about it, and over 200 people would show up to pay their respects to Katie and give their condolences to the family. They all gathered at Mr. Gingrich's farm where Bishop Shetler began the sermon. It lasted about 45 minutes. Amish funerals are just like their lives, very plain and simple. There were no flowers, no eulogy, no praise. After the sermon was over, they loaded the casket onto a buggy and transported her body to the Grab-Off Cemetery, just down the road from the Gingrich's farm. They lowered the coffin into the ground, and a hymn was spoken aloud before the grave was filled in with shovel loads of dirt. After Katie's casket was completely covered, everyone went back to the Gingrich's farm for a funeral dinner. Later on in the evening, Katie and Edward's families gathered in the living room at Mr. Gingrich's house. Danny had asked them all to come because the nightmare that he had witnessed was tearing him up inside. He told everyone exactly what he had seen, and he felt awful about leaving Katie and the kids so he'd go get help. He wanted them all to understand why he made the choice he did. He told them that just before he made the decision to go to get help, he saw a figure next to Edward that terrified him. He said, It was standing right next to Ed, in the flesh. Who? I saw him. Who was it? Satan. (gasps) Who? The devil himself, standing right there next to Ed. Oh my God. He came out of Ed and stood there. I was scared and I ran for my life. Now, considering... Yeah, I mean, you know, considering the audience, I feel like that's plausible. I mean, anyone who had been faced with that situation would have later than... I mean, who? there's no limit to what someone could autofill, you know. After coming in, you see this guy standing over his wife and he just punched to the ground. He's been getting crazier and crazier, like, over the days and... You know, maybe he really did see the devil. He could have. Who knows? But the decision of him leaving to go get help, like, all right, so the Amish don't believe in violence to begin with. So he, by just pushing his brother, was already a violation of the ordinance yeah, that oversees really their point. behavior. Right, right. Yeah, that you shall not enact. Yeah, right. So he was in violation of the ordinance by just pushing his brother. So he couldn't fight his brother to do it. Like, he couldn't do that. It was going against a whole lifetime's worth of programming, yeah. telling them never to fight against your brother lest you be excommunicated from the community. It, that's exactly you know? it. So he made the only decision he could do by leaving to get help. Like, he couldn't stop him. Right, right. Nobody spoke after he said those words about seeing the devil, and slowly everyone would start to leave the house. On October 2nd, 1993... A routine pretrial hearing was held, and Edward's attorneys announced to the court that they were planning on using the insanity defense. So there would be two sides that the defense were mulling over in order to use the insanity defense. One was that the murder was the result of Amish inbreeding, and the other was that the murder was due to the extended exposure to gunk's toxic fumes. And I'm sure they were juggling the combination of the two as well. But in January, the defense hired Dr. Lawson F. Bernstein, Jr., He was a professor of psychiatry from the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. Dr. Bernstein looked over Edward's confession and met with him on multiple occasions and determined that Edward lacked the mental capacity to appreciate the nature of his act and therefore could not discern right from wrong and therefore could not be held accountable for his actions during the time of Katie's murder. Then in February, the defense team sent 
sent the psychiatric reports to Dr. Philip J. Resnick, a professor of forensic psychiatry at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. The doctor wrote them back in March saying, It's my opinion that the authors of the reports had a reasonable basis for concluding that Mr. Gingrich was severely ill and did not know the wrongfulness of killing his wife at the time of the homicide. The prosecution and the defense were each hoping to use family members of both Edward and Katie as witnesses. They did not, however, take into account that this was not a typical run-of-the-mill murder case. Plus, they were diehard Amish, and therefore every member refused to testify. On March 24, 1994, day one of the first Amish murder trial case in the United States judicial history would begin, setting an historic marker. It would take place at the Crawford County Courthouse in Meadville, Pennsylvania. It didn't take long for the jury to find Edward guilty of involuntary manslaughter, but also found that he was indeed mentally ill. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to connect those dots. It's so nuts that you can get an you physically murder somebody, but get an involuntary manslaughter. Yeah, like you go to the trouble of removing their organs. <laughs> yeah. And they still tell you, like, well, he didn't really mean to do it though. So to the Amish community, the verdict was a total insult. Bishop Shetler wrote up a petition for the judge and managed to get 60 signatures. It read, About Edward Gingrich. We like Edward Gingrich. We really do, but absolutely do not trust him and are seriously afraid of him because of what he did. We want him to stay in Warren County Mental Ward for good. Edward's sentencing was on March 2nd, 1994, and he was sentenced to a maximum of five years with a minimum of two and a half, with time served. Edward Gingrich would serve a four-year sentence and was released on March 19th, 1998 at the age of 34 years old. He would be 100% shunned by his community and could not go back there, so he went to Harmony Heaven in Everett, Michigan, which just sounds so lovely. It really does, yeah. Harmony Heaven was a community for troubled Amish, if you could imagine. Did you know there was such a thing, Scott, a, a place for troubled Amish? Like, I've never even thought about an Amish troubled youth home. Well, it's... I am curious. My curiosity is piqued. You know, if the Amish have a troubled youth, like, home or program, whatever, this means that the Mennonites must have a, a same place. And if that's true, then it's way more badass, seeing that the Mennonites are just far more progressive, right? I mean, shit yeah, man. They get electricity and phones in their homes. Like, they are way more wild, if you ask me, dude. Yeah, dude, and I guess they are even allowed to use cell phones now. And computers, bro. Yeah, I think they've got an entire IT department at Apple or some shit. Just quick learners, you know? And check this shit, Scott. I found out that the Mennonites can drink booze. What? Dude. Yeah. Yeah, man. But they probably aren't going full blast on keg stands and beer bongs and, you know, shit like that. But you never know. I mean, they probably are. I mean, Mennonite, I say men in right. You know what I mean? Holla. Just beer ponging out there. Yeah, dude. But no, their website, um, what is it? MHEP.org says that beer and wine drinking used to be a big no-no, but now it's relaxed a bit. And they say, yeah, it's not uncommon to find beer or wine at family picnics. When the family picnic is code for running an entire brewery and just getting shit hammered every day. Yeah, right. Used to be a no-no, now it's a go-go. <laughs> exactly. But anyway, Harmony Heaven had a machine shop. Oh, baby, baby, back in business. He is. Baby. Happy. Machines couldn't ask for anything more. Edward would obviously be drawn to those beautiful machines and would start working in the shop full-time. This sort of gave him pleasure, but he was also growing quite bored of it as well. 
Edward remained at this troubled Amish center until 2007 when he and his two brothers decided to take off and kidnap his 17-year-old daughter. The 43-year-old Edward was sentenced in December 5th, 2007 with six months of probation in order to pay a $500 fine for concealment of whereabouts of a child and interfering with the custody of a child. From what I could gather, Edward went to his former Amish community in a black sedan and found his daughter, Mary, riding in a horse and buggy with her aunt traveling down Frisbee Town Road. And he drove past them quickly and did the whole e-brake thing and skidded right in front of them, which made their horses have to slam on their own brakes, which left some hefty skid marks. Oh, on the road or in their burlap underwear? Both, of course. Then he and his brothers jumped out where they buggy-jacked Mary and her aunt and then rode it inside of a barn so no one would see it. And they locked the aunt in a closet or something. They took Mary with them in the sedan and skedaddled on out of there. Eddie was fairly quickly caught for that and just couldn't stay away from trouble. I like to look at it like trouble couldn't stay away from him. Yeah, man. And in 2008, he was found possessing a firearm in which he was prohibited from doing and was charged with a second-degree felony and was sentenced again in October to three months in jail. By the way, did you see that Trump bought a handgun last week? No, I didn't. Yeah. Is that some gun show or something? Bought a handgun. It was all televised. He was like looking at it and showing it off. And I mean, he was just indicted for how many felonies and he's purchasing guns now. Guess he's not convicted yet. <laughs> he's not convicted. It's unknown, really, where Edward went after he was released, but we do know he moved in with the attorney who had represented the Gingrich children. George Schroke and his wife lived on their farm for around six months until, on January 14th, 2011, Edward went out to the stalls at 10 a.m. to feed the horses, but did not return. Stephanie Schroke found him around 3 p.m. He had hung himself and left a note on a turned-over bucket that said, Forgive me, please. Edward D. Gingrich was 44 years old when he died. It's really troubling. This guy's just disturbed from the beginning, became more disturbed, was ignored, shot up with drugs, became even more disturbed, killed his wife. Before that had even happened, he said, I just want to take myself out of the equation. And his wife was like, no. And then in the end, he finally got what he wanted. Man. Just a troubled soul from the beginning. I don't even know how you remedy that shit, but... Whew. In an Amish life, like they operate in such a secretive way. It's crazy, man. But this is a really, really sad story and groundbreaking. Yeah, the first Amish ever to be charged with murder. And convicted. And convicted. It's important to note, though, that the Amish are very hush-hush about the violence that occurs, and it's highly likely that they are able to keep much of that violence away from the outside world's prying eyes. True, we don't really know because we don't have that much of a look into what's really going on. But that's not to say that crime does not happen because it certainly does. I mean, they were the beard cutters of Burkholz. We won't get into it here, but it's a great story. There was Samuel Bontrager. Now's not a good time to discuss it. There was Amos Yoder. Too much to cover right now, guys. And Eli Weaver, another crazy story, but much like the other three, we won't talk about it at this point in time. Not at this point in time, but could be a preview of coming attractions. Could be. In the past 250 plus years that it's been recorded, there have only been up to 10 reported cases of murder as a result of either Amish on Amish crime or an English on Amish crime. Pretty crazy. That's not much recording of it. But it's hard to say with any great degree of certainty what the exact crime rates are in the Amish world. 
One thing is for certain, though, the crime rates that we do know about indicate that the crimes committed by Amish toward other Amish are far lower than those committed by the English toward the Amish. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. So I think this is where we will end this episode and conclude the two-parter on Edward Gingrich, the first Amish person charged and convicted of murder in the entire Amish-American history of the United States. As usual, thank you all for listening and lending your support. Please, if you haven't yet, click that subscribe button, share us, like us, and definitely rate us on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you can rate us. Be generous and hit that five-star rating. You can also participate in some cool polls we have on each episode on Spotify, and you can let us know your opinions. Super cool. Very rad indeed. You guys should definitely check that out. And if you'd like, you can email us at paranautica at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter under at Paranautica, or you can even check out Facebook if you want. Whatever. It's all gravy, baby. But the important thing is to subscribe to the Paranautica podcast. Yes. Give us that five-star rating, yes. man. A cinco estrellas. Please help us out. And remember, folks, getting the word out about this podcast is all about word of mouth. Get out there in the streets, speak your mind, be free. Join one of those nudist bike rides around New York or Philly. Shout out to Philly. Yeah, or Seattle or Portland or Austin or Chicago or I think Madison, Milwaukee or Orlando. I don't know. Maybe surprise Arizona. But paint the Paranautica podcast on that glistening skin of yours and your favorite shade of red. And be proud up there on that seatless bicycle of yours. Yes, the one to which you're so very attached. And then attach a sweet loudspeaker to the front of the handlebars. And with one hand, always holding the little radio speaker thing, ride around one-handed on your seatless bicycle and peacefully and respectfully, but sternly, demand that everyone around you with an earshot listen to the Paranautica podcast. Absolutely. It's worth the ride. All right, everyone. We love you all. Take care. And we'll be back next week. You know what? I did that Milwaukee one